0: A chance to take part in something truly historical. We might be aware of faraway events distant from our day to day lives. We might even take an active part in our small ways on something much bigger boating, working, caring, protesting. We might witness the changes in technology of our time, remembering with fond nostalgia how we used to cope before this device or that sign of progress. In our time of everything at speed, it is hard to truly imagine just how slow things used to be. A sleepy return to Cornwall on the train might seem like forever now, but what if I told you that just one trip up to Plymouth would once take the best part of seven hours? That if you weren't one of the lucky ones with a pound or four to spare for the inside coach, you might have to brave the wind, cold and rain on an outside seat for 16 shillings. And don't forget you're a half-crown for the coachman and the guard. We are traveling back in time to when Cornwall was even further away, to when 10 miles per hour, on average, was considered top speed, to when you would need to wait on each stop for a change of the four horses that pulled you and the rest of the passengers up all of those hills and down those valleys, until the ferry marked the end of the county. In this episode, we tell the remarkable story of William Stevens Bilkey, the last guard on the mail coach from Falmouth to Plymouth. We examine the history of this irreplaceable service and how it grew obsolete, and we tell the story of one of Falmouth Cemetery's expansions. My name is Xerezade Garcia-Rangel, and this is On the Hill.
1: The tomings, All the
0: Last week I went for a walk in Thalma Cemetery with my colleague Abigail Winkert. We made a stop in William Stevens Pilkis Grave.
2: Okay, so you've brought me to this grave, and this is William Stevens Bilkey. Why are we here, and why is he interesting?
0: We are here um, in the grave of William Bilkey because, um, as it says here on the grave, he was the last guard of the mail coach um, from Falmouth, and the last person to be employed um, in this service that, um, in his lifetime, ended because of the arrival of the railway to Cornwall. Oh, so 1913 is the is the end of the mail coach. Is that quite late for England? He finished working earlier than that. The train arrived oh, to Cornwall in 1859, um, and he had been working on there for a few years. And um, he continued on his life to work as the bus driver for the Green Bay Hotel. And he was known for that more than he was known for being the last um, guard on the last mail coach. But he was
2: there then at the end of an era, the end of the mail coaching era.:
0: Absolutely. He was there at the end of an era. He saw it arriving. Um, he would have traveled, I think it was 40 different horses they had to change all the way to Plymouth and back down, just to Plymouth, just to Plymouth. The journey wow. started between one a.m and 2 a.m, um, and he would stop many, many times to pick up the mail, and he would um, he would be standing behind the coach. Uh, grabbing onto it, um, and he would be armed because he was protecting the male, um, and his job became not needed anymore, and so he reinvented himself after that, and he had already reinvented himself earlier and he's buried with his wife, Elizabeth. And they were together many years. She died before he did, and they had many children. He saw them all buried. Oh, they all died before this couple they all died before oh. them. So he had a long life, he
2: studied, he worked on the mail coach, he worked for a hotel, yeah. um,
0: still quite a long life, what did he do after the mail coach apart from the hotel? Well, he was beloved and apparently a very good storyteller, but one of the most peculiar things about him is that he, he was really into gardening and he created a new type of begonia called the Mrs Wilkie after his wife and oh. you can still find it it's a pink begonia called the color of salmon
2: Mrs Bilkey, named after Elizabeth and here she is okay we yeah. should look out for that yeah yeah Absolutely.
0: William Stevens Bilkey was born in the village of Grampound Cornwall We do not have the exact date And in our research, we found a couple of records which instead of shedding light to this, they contradict themselves. According to William's grave in Falmouth Cemetery, when he died on the 6th of February 1913, he was 82 years old. This would mean that William was born sometime in 1831. However, the 1841 census of the Civil Parish of Creed and Grandpound seems to identify a William who might be slightly older. The census describes a Bilkey family group. Dorothy, 57, agricultural labourer. and Bilkey, 22, same profession. Thomas, 18, blacksmith's apprentice. And William Bilkey, 12, in county. If this is the same William, as the description given in William's obituary in the Falmouth Packet seems to suggest, for he is described to be working in the fields as early as eight years old, William would have been born sometime in 1829 making him 84 years old when he died and was buried in Falmouth Cemetery. This kind of contradiction is not uncommon in the 19th century. Records were made by hand and from memory, often carrying inconsistencies like this. What this shows, however, is that William Stevens Bilkey lived most of his life witnessing and participating in the great changes of the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian era. He was a child when Augustus Smith obtained the Silly Isles. He would have been a young man when Sir Robert Rawlinson came down to Falmouth to examine the living conditions of the inhabitants of the town. He would have been in class when the 1858 Cornish foreshore case confirmed that the Duke of Cornwall owns the rights to the mines and minerals under the Cornish foreshore. He was a man when the artist colonies of La Morna and Newlin were established, and he would have been an old man about to retire when John Davy, one of the last persons with traditional knowledge of Kernowek, the Cornish language, died in 1891. William Bilkey participated directly on the history of this county. When he was 16, after working a few years in the fields, he moved to San Osto to take charge of a brewery, The former supervisor took a kindness to him and taught him how to brew. It seems that William liked to learn. His obituary in the Falmouth packet describes his studious nature.
1: Death of Mr. W.S. Bilkey, guard of the last male coach from Falmouth. A most interesting personage passed away at Falmouth yesterday morning in Mr. William Stephen Bilkey of Arwin Cottages. He was well known to the older generation of Falmouthians and was one of the most famous whips in the county. The deceased had a very interesting record. He was born at Grand and at eight years old went to work in the fields. There was little or no education for boys in those days, but despite the fact that he had to help to earn his livelihood at so tender an age, young Bilkey never lost an opportunity of learning what he could do.
0: This thirst for learning would accompany William all his life. He worked at the brewery during the day, and at night he went to school at the risk of missing supper. Beloved by the cook, the obituary also states that food invariably found its way to William. Soon after, William began his career as a postboy to the White Hart Hotel, where he also acted as postillion, riding on the near-side or left-hand-side horse of a team or pair drawing a coach or carriage. He became renowned for his ability as a driver and moved on to the position of guard of the old mail coach from Falmouth to Plymouth. Mail coaches carried and delivered the post in sealed bags to a postmaster's house or local inn. They would give warning of their approach by sounding the post horn. Guards would wear royal uniforms and they would travel endlessly back and forth, back and forth, delivering and protecting the mail. Before we look at more of William Bilkey's life, let's examine the mail coach service, its origins, and the technology that would eventually make this once vital service obsolete. Whilst helping to run two theaters in the mid 18th century, John Palmer had tasked himself with finding a solution to the problem of getting actors and properties between the 12 miles that separated the venues in Bath and Bristol. He organized a service of rapid travelling post chase and soon realized that a similar solution could solve another problem. He was frustrated with how the post was the slowest conveyance in the country, despite the improvement in roads and the modernizing technologies of carriages. Realizing that the stagecoach could travel from Bath to London in 17 hours, whilst it took the post two days to arrive to the city, Palmer knew that the journey could be done much faster. He approached two post-officer surveyors, George Hudson and Nathan Draper, and promised the coach between London and Bristol could do the journey in 16 hours, an impossibility were the cries that met him. But William Pitt, Chancellor of the Exchequer, took on the challenge and preparations for a journey in August 1784 were made. Needless to say. And as is stated on information sheet number 8 for the mail coach service 1784 to 1846, the impossible was accomplished. This information sheet also describes the mail coach service as steady and punctual. Coachmen and guard were dressed in royal livery, and an article in the Bath Chronicle on September 16, 1784, describes how they, and I quote, caught a most superior figure, The article goes on to say, and I quote, it is certainly very proper that the government carriages should be thus distinguished. Such a mark of His Majesty's application does the contractor's great honor, and it is with much pleasure we see so great a change in the conveyance of our mails, not only in its speed and safety, but in its present respectable appearance from an old card and ragged boy. Unlike trains, mail coaches never had names, with the exception of one, which journeyed between London and Devonport. Considered the fastest of all mail coaches, it had an average speed of 10 miles per hour, which earned it the name of the Quicksilver, according to the information sheet quoted earlier, made by the Post Office Archives. This service became a staple of British society before the railway era, the annual ceremonial procession of male coaches on the birthday of the reigning monarch often created, and I quote, considerable sensation. Spectators would crowd the street and thoroughfares of the West End and residents of houses would be able to see the whole display from balconies or windows from their own houses, End quote. Each male coach would travel with a guard, often an ex-soldier comfortable with arms. The guard was entrusted with a case of letter bags, and would need to ensure the safe and sealed delivery of them, as required. Arms carried by the mail coach guards included a sword case with a cutlass, a brace of pistols, and a blunderbuss. To enter the time bill of the coach's time of arrival and departure at each stage of the journey, mail coach guards would also carry a timepiece, which could not be tampered with, locked in a leather pouch. They also carried a horn to announce arrivals at tollgates. During one of his journeys as guard of the Falmouth to Plymouth mail coach, William Bilkey witnessed a tragedy. He was called to give evidence at a coroner's inquest on the 6th of May, 1859, when a man travelling outside the stagecoach was killed during the journey. These are the only words we have from William Bilkey himself.
1: I had three passengers behind. The deceased was sitting on the outside, on the near side. I was not aware we were passing under an arch, the luggage was about two portmanteaus high, and I could not see over it without standing up. The luggage was a few inches higher than the passengers' heads as they sat. I caught sight of the arch as the accident happened. The deceased did not rise from his seat, I believe he was struck off by the luggage, a box on that side being knocked about a foot toward him. I was standing, about to blow my horn just as I heard the crash. The deceased pitched on the hind wheel, which carried him round, and he fell between the fore and hind wheels, and my impression is that the hind wheel went over him. We were not going particularly fast. The deceased was quite sober. I consider that the arch, from its position and construction, was dangerous, and not at all fitted for a coach to pass under. William Bilkey, giving evidence for the coroner's inquest of William Lear's death, 6th of May 1859… Royal Cornwall Gazette. There are some darkness there are some darkness
0: the jury found a verdict of accidental death occasioned by the improper construction of the ark outside of Union Hotel, guiltless in such an unfortunate accident. William continued to serve as the guard of the mail coach. According to an article republished in the Falmouth Packet a week after William's death, the mail coach was drawn by four horses, would leave Falmouth at 1.30 a.m., and would arrive to Plymouth at 8 p.m. Making a total of nine calls, the mail coach called at Truro, Bilberry, Liscard, Shevac, and others. The coach, which could also carry 13 passengers, four in and nine outside, would cross the Tamar by ferry at Torpoint, Proudly wearing his uniform of scarlet with blue lapels, gold braid, and white ruffles, William was the last man to serve in this post for the railway would finally arrive to Cornwall, thanks to the construction of the Royal Albert Bridge over the Tamar, which was opened on the 2nd of May, 1859, by the Prince Consort. The line opened for passengers from Plymouth to Truro on the 4th of May of 1859, at a limit of 30 miles per hour, three times as fast as the fastest male coach. The train would arrive to Falmouth a few years later, on the 24th of August 1863. Technology effectively brought an end to the mail coach era. Let's go back to learn more about William Bilkey. As he had before, William adapted successfully to this new change in profession and went on to drive the bus for Mr. Cyrus Best at the Green Van Hotel until he retired, unwillingly it seems in 1892.
1: The deceased was a special favourite with the leading residents of the district and his courteous manner led to him being in great demand as a whip. He also had the proud distinction of driving royalty on more than one occasion.
0: William spent the last five years of his life confined to his bed due to ill health. His active life had brought him many adventures, but it is another element of his legacy perhaps unexpected, which carries on today.
1: The deceased was a most enthusiastic lover of flowers, and a great student of nature in all its different aspects. His advice was often sought on matters relating to the floriculture, and in this respect he had a large circle of friends. Some years ago, he succeeded in raising a new species of begonia, which he names Mrs. Bilkey. Death of Mr. W.S. Bilkey. Guard of the last mail coach from Falmouth. Falmouth Packet, 7th of February 1913.
0: You can still find the Mrs. Bilkey, a bushy begonia with attractive foliage and brightly coloured flowers, in garden centres across the UK. Known for his hand at gardening, William's advice was often thought on floriculture, an area where he had a strong community. By the time that William died, Elizabeth, his wife, and all of his six children had passed away. We like to think, though, that a man so beloved and remembered in life would have died in the company of friends. After Famous Cemetery at Swanville first opened in the eighteen fifties, following the town's effort to secure the well-being of its inhabitants. The Falmouth Corporation encountered a continuous problem. They ran out of space, constantly, following the town's growth over the years. The need to expand the cemetery kept showing up across the decades. In 1990, the clerk of the Falmouth Boreal Board engaged in lengthy correspondence with the Secretary of State for the Home Department at Whitehall, London. His task was to secure the permission to purchase three acres of land adjoining the cemetery, which the board considered admirably adapted to the required purpose. On behalf of the board, Skinner the clerk set about negotiating a loan that would cover the purchase of the land from the Right Honourable the Earl of Kimberley, who had agreed to sell the freehold at £220. Further funds were also needed to cover the enclosing, draining, laying, and planting out of the land according to the provisions of the Burial Acts which regulated all cemeteries in the UK. The total sum of the desired loan was £700, and Skinner applied for this sum to the commissioners of Her Majesty's Queen Victoria's Treasury.
1: I should perhaps here state that subject also to your approval, it was the express desire of the respective vestries that the repayment of the money should be spread over a period of thirty years. Soliciting the favour of a reply at your earliest convenience, I have the honour to be, sir, your obedient servant, H.F.S. Skinner, Clark.
0: Permission to purchase a land of a total of two acres, three roots, and twenty-six poles, situated in an open position adjoining the southern boundary of the old churchyard, was granted upon the condition that it follow the regulations for new burial grounds. A map dated the 12th of November 1890 shows the addition proposed. You can see it on our Twitter account at We Are on the Hill. A few decades later, a need for another expansion had arisen. This latest one would be one of the most contested in the history of Falmouth Cemetery, and we will discuss the background of the final purchase in our coming episodes. How the Falmouth Corporation went about securing an extension in the 20th century. As reported on the Falmouth packet on Sunday the 1st of October 1914, more than a year later after William Bilkey was buried in Falmouth Cemetery, Alderman Gross and Councillor Bullen secured a meeting in London with Lord Kimberley, the owner of the plot of land surrounding Falmouth Cemetery. They set about discussing with Lord Kimberley the purchase of another two acres of land Previous exchanges with Lord Kimberley had already taken place. The land in question was first offered at £2,000, a prohibiting price for the corporation. A further reduction to £1,775 had been offered, but considering the funds needed to lay out the land, this was rejected as too expensive. Gross and Bullen had the mission to convince Kimberley to part with the land at an affordable price.
1: We were received most courteously and allowed to lay before his lordship the views entertained by the General Purposes Committee on this subject, which we both individually pressed most earnestly upon his attention, consisting of the fact that the land on the south side of the present cemetery of two acres, three roods and thirteen perches was, from all points of view, the most suitable in the interests of the ratepayers.
0: Lord Kimberley had his own plans his agents have been negotiating with applicants for residential sites upon the land situated opposite to the land the corporation desired, and although he was not insensitive to the claims they presented, he laid emphasis on the fact that, and I quote, to comply with a corporation's present request would not only be to close abruptly those negotiations, but that it would deprecate the value of the adjacent building site and do his state an irretrievable injury, end quote. Aware that the corporation could impose the purchase through obtaining compulsory powers and keen to demonstrate how costly this would be for them, Lord Kimberley offered an alternative plot of land on the west side of their existing cemetery. When his suggestion met again with resistance, Lord Kimberley made a use of an example of a cemetery successfully laid out in similar conditions to the one he offered. This cemetery would go on to become one of the UK's most famous Victorian sites.
1: We gathered from Lord Kimberley that he did not share the view we were deputed to represent as to the unsuitability of the site on the west side, owning to the gradient, and in support of this contention he mentioned by way of illustration the sloping situation of the Highgate Cemetery in London. Alderman J. Gross and Councillor Bullen, Falmouth Packet, 6th of February, 1914.
0: Following this encounter, and with the offer that Lord Kimberley was prepared to part with his site at a nominal price, Groves and Bullen brought the news to the corporation. Inevitably, they were again met with resistance. However, the recommendations of purchasing this land carried and this secured the current site we now know as the old famous cemetery in Penance Road. The land they purchased on this effort is the section situated closest to the Swampool Lagoon at the bottom of the hill. We will now hear Jennifer Young's creative response to the life of William Bilkey.
2: Mrs. Bilkey, the salmon orange petals cascade from the baskets that hang just outside my window. Mrs. Bilkey enjoyed bright colors, and she had taken excellent care of the scarlet coat I wore as a mail coach guard, scarlet with blue lapels. My black hat with gilt braid always held a high sheen, thanks to her. Of all my adventures, riding on top of the mail coach, driving the Green Bank Hotel omnibus, even driving royalty, this, the Mrs. Bilkey, is my greatest achievement. I left the mail coach in 1863, or rather, the mail coach left the country. The railway took away the need for the coach. Oh, the speeds we used to reach, careening around the countryside at ten miles per hour, changing horses once an hour. Forty horses between Falmouth and Plymouth. But the railway was coming. Other guards had encounters with dogs, even lionesses. My worst experience didn't come from a man-eating animal, but a simple arch, and all because of the railway. I ran a brewery at sixteen, but I snuck out at night to go to school. I had a reputation as a driver and a rider, fame even, and soon I left the brewery to be a guard on the mail coach. Plymouth to Falmouth and back again. I much preferred it to the brewery. I could be outside, perched on the back of the coach with my timepiece, my horn, and my weapons. Two pistols and a blunderbuss. But that time, the time with the arch, I didn't even have time to sound my horn. We came into Truro on our way back from Plymouth, 1859. The railway had been announced. I later learned Truro had been taking up a collection for an archway to celebrate, ha, celebrate the end of the coaches. Perhaps they had imbibed heavily before they started building the archway. It ran from the corner of the Union Hotel to the corner of the house on the opposite side of St. Austell Street. For whatever reason, alcohol or not, the arch wasn't built at a right angle. John, John Glossop, the driver, didn't see it. Nine o'clock at night. The yellow pools of light from the gaslights were on the house side of the street, not the hotel side, and somebody covered the arch with laurel branches. The luggage was two portmanteaus in height, so I couldn't see over it unless I stood up. I had lifted my horn to sound that we were coming through, when the coach lurched and a crash broke the air. The man didn't stand up, but a box listed back about a foot, and a foot was enough. He pitched over the side onto the hind wheel, which carried him around. He fell between the hind and the four-wheel, and from all accounts, the hind wheel rolled over him. Oh, that noise. The thud. Coach stopped, and I ran forward to say there had been an accident. The man, William Lear, only a few years younger than I was, was carried into the Union Hotel. Red, frothy blood poured from his mouth as they carried him in. I had to stay with the coach as the only post office employee. I could not leave the mail but I heard from John about the surgeon, about the tear on Lear's trousers, as if the wheel had ripped them, and about how he died not even a quarter of an hour later. John felt dreadfully about it, but how was he to know the arch would be there and so badly built? We'd left Falmouth that morning and went straight through Truro, no arch. John wasn't charged. They came back with accidental death. I was only 32 when the railway finally came in, and the mail coaches ceased. No more running up and down the country for me. Instead, I drove the Omnibus for Mr. Cyrus Banks at the Green Bank Hotel. Mrs. Bilkey preferred that as well. I was home more. I loved driving horses, the excitement of seeing who would come to the Green Bank each day. But the best part of my life was being with my flowers. For years, I worked on begonias. Mrs. Bilkey loved begonias. She loved bright colors, like my scarlet coat. My greatest achievement was this salmon pink begonia a new species. Of course I named it Mrs. Bilking. What else? She passed away over a year ago. I'd get out of my bed to show you the routes I used to drive if I could, but at least I can see out the window into Falmouth. And my begonias. I'm the only one who was left. My children died before me, but I leave the begonia in my memory of my
0: wife. I had the opportunity to sit with Jennifer and ask her questions about her response. Here's my conversation with her. Um, hi Jennifer, thanks hi. for doing this from the hill and for talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. Um, you have someone who had a very peculiar life, William Belkey, kind of a life that was outdating itself the more it went on. Um, I just wonder what made you curious about him. Part of the reason I was curious
2: about him was that my great grandfather was a postal worker. All right. So it was a nice kind of link, although he worked in a post office and he didn't draw a coach or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, so that drew me to this one because mm. I have that history. Um, mm. And I really like the idea, as you say, of his life outpacing technology. Mm. Or yes. Or technology outpacing his life, rather.
0: Yeah. Um, I was As I was listening to you read the story, I was thinking, there's actually a connection with the lives we live now and how our jobs are kind of slowly becoming replaceable and the skills that we have need to be updated constantly you think that's true i think that's definitely true
2: yeah and the thing i found interesting is that his tombstone says that it's the last male coach guard but he stopped doing that when he was 32 and he died much much older than that so it was a relatively small part of his life Mm -hmm. but perhaps the most memorable perhaps
0: yeah I mean, I just think about that journey, you know, eight hours starts at 1.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing's, no one's awake except the people in the coach. And it's four, 40 changes of horses. Yeah. Am I right? Yes. To be able to get to I know, <laughs> which is an hour now Yeah. Um, on a train and, it, and a train that stops and sometimes is delayed. But the sheer amount of effort just to be able to get there and back, it's, it's outstanding, no no male takes that much of effort now. Yeah. Did you think about that journey when you were constructing the story?
2: I did, because I thought about how... We all complain about how long it takes to get out of Cornwall, especially <laughs> when there's a storm going on. But yeah. it is that fact that it took so
0: long. Yeah. Um, I mean, the difference must have been... I, I don't even know how they would have wrapped their minds around the fact that now instead of eight hours, just to Plymouth. Um, you know, it's five hours up to London, and we think that's a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and now, or like an, an hour on, on the plane, but it, they, they would have seen the change. I mean, not necessarily only to five hours. It probably would have taken still a long time. Um, and certainly for the railway to get all the way down to Cornwall and... Yes. through the different lines that we have now to use that would have taken longer than, than that immediate change of not needing the, mm. the male coach anymore. But it's this idea of thinking about him and thinking about, you know, this is my life. This is such a good job to have. You know, he had this wonderful uniform, which we'll talk about in a moment. But after that, living decades of your life, seeing that change and change and change of in a in a faster pace as it goes on. What a what an unusual time to be it's part nice of. Nice to be appreciated. That's the phone. That's, That's the my, my That's <laughs> yes, it is. That's him. That's yes. William talking to us. It's nice to be appreciated. Yes. <laughs> That's technology piping in. Yes, yes, we were talking about you. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think, and I also think about the fact that probably the male coach was. The fact that it did take that much time and they put that much effort and energy into it meant that it was relatively quick to what they had had before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yet I have a friend who researches um, the pre and mm-hmm. she's at Oxford Brooks It's Diana Rowe. Diana Rowe and she said that um, there's loads of letters then back and forth because they got posted on the same day, and it was invite people over for dinner, oh, and they'd respond. Oh, right. And then it would say, bring a candlestick, because no one had enough candlesticks <laughs> And I think to go from if you lived in London and you had all of those quick fire messages right. to yeah. this long to get.
0: Between it makes me think of in the cage, Henry James, in this idea of all those communication going back and forth and, and the miscommunication that can happen in between. And you you had to wait. That's the wonderful thing about that time. We don't wait for, for many things anymore. now Then you had to wait. You had to wait for an answer. You had to sit there. And wonder what it might be. <laughs> yes. Um now you can know that people have read it. Now mm-hmm. that you can know that people well, how long they te- they took before between reading it and responding. But and um, to arrange
2: this recording session, you sent me an email and then about two minutes later sent me a text I yeah.
0: I just emailed you. <laughs> I did. It's like so. just just check your email in case you didn't see that one yes. fast enough. Yes, you know? exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, this is the time, so this is around 1859. Mm, that was the accident year. That's the accident year. So that's also 1853 is around the time the cemetery starts oh, um, becoming uh, officially a mm. cemetery. People were being buried there a little bit before. But that's just around the time where, where Victorian England is uh, trying to organize life and trying to push kind of progress for forward. So we have him in, in a unique job, but it doesn't seem like even in the other jobs, he continued to be a unique job performed by a unique person. Yeah?
2: Yes, I think so. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's the uh, information about him talks about how he had driven royalty and mm. he, and the fact that it says he drove the bus not for the hotel but for the owner of the hotel so it feels very much like he was personally chosen
0: yeah sounds Um, like he was
2: and the other thing i found that i thought was really interesting was that he was the only royal mail employee on the coach which is why he had to stay with the mail Mm -hmm. because that was his job whereas the drivers weren't as weren't connected to the post office
0: i know lots of our listeners will know what this is but i don't so i wanted to ask (laughs) you what's a (laughs) blunderbuss
2: it's a type of gun and i'm not it's one of the things i wasn't sure about putting in because i wasn't sure if that they carried a blunderbuss throughout the whole of the time that the mail coaches were running. But right. I know that was one of the things they were issued with at some point. Ah, okay. So I don't know if it would still be a blunderbuss.
0: Because mm. he had to re- um, defend the mail. Yes, male. yes that was exactly. he, he was the guard of the yeah. mail, wasn't he?
2: And there was a time that a lioness escaped and
0: attacked. You did coach. mention the lioness. Yes. That was going to be one of my questions. Um, yes. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question.
2: It was a like lioness who was, had gotten loose...
0: It was and someone's menagerie? Yeah, on the
2: Exeter mail coach on its way to London, um, went into the pheasant inn, and the lioness had escaped from a traveling menagerie. Oh, wow. Um, and then she went from the coach to a large dog, and then she chased and killed the dog.
0: Oh. It just sounds horrible. <laughs> um, tell me about the uniform. You've shown me a photo of, of the uniform, but I bet our listeners will want to hear a bit more of that.
2: It's really interesting, I thought, and the, apparently it was designed to look relatively militaristic mm. because they wanted That's to what have I that thought sense when I saw of, it. Yeah. this is an official person and you don't mess with him. Mm.
0: Um, mm-hmm. So
2: yes, it was a scarlet coat with um, blue lapels and um, gold braid, and he had a timepiece that would have been keeping London time.
1: Ah, um, okay.
2: So I found it really mm. interesting that it was such a particular way of dressing and saying, I am the representative of the Postal Service.
0: Yeah. It made me think about the rat coats. Yes, exactly. and Kind of the, the idea of the British Army from mm-hmm. the perspective of others. Definitely looks quite official and, and it features, and it, it opens the story to allow that connection between him and his wife, who seems mm-hmm. to be quite an important person in his life. Yes, yeah? I think so. And
2: it was also the fact that you can still find um, plant stores online now that sell the Mrs. Bilkey Right. Um, begonia. And, but I found, I went and looked at lots of these, <laughs> mostly because I wanted to know what it looked like. And yeah. it, only one of them called it the Mrs. William Bilkey, and all the rest were always Mrs. Ah, Bilkey.
0: Right. Which I found interesting. And that's how you found out that it was salmon-colored. Yes. yeah, yeah. Quite an interesting thing to do, create a new species of a plant for someone who's professional life wasn't dedicated to that. Mm. He still must have dedicated a lot of time. Apparently he was really well known for horticulture and people would Mm. ask his advice on Mm -hmm. growing things. One of the things that called my attention, I think you bring that up at the end of the story is the idea that he traveled so much. I mean, for someone at that time, it was rare to to travel if you didn't have privilege. Um, He had his job and his job enabled this. Um, also when he was driving the coach for the Greenbank Hotel also would be quite mobile. But it sounds like he ended his life stuck in bed mm-hmm. and looking from there. Yes. Kind Sorry, of in the day. last
2: five years of his life he was tr- confined to his bed. Yeah. Um, and I found that very sad, especially that all of he had, I think they had six children and they all predeceased
0: him. Yeah, they did. Um, um he f- ends his life as a widower. Mm-hmm. It seems like the town would have still, from, from everything we have read and learned about him, it seems like he was really connected to Falmouth. Yes, it
2: does seem like he was a very connected person in Falmouth and very respected, whether it was for horticulture or for being such a well-known driver.
0: Yes. So I would imagine that even, even, a, even when Mrs. Wilkie dies, he still has people around. Oh, I Um think so. They talk about him in the newspapers as someone memorable, someone you wanted to have a, a long conversation mm-hmm. with. That seems to feature in the story because he's, he's telling a story. Isn't yes,
2: it? I imagined yeah. it as him telling a story near to his own death.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you imagine who he might be telling it to? I
2: sort of imagined he was telling it to me, actually. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the other thing I found really inspiring about him was that he would sneak out at night to go to school, but it almost always meant that he missed his meal, his evening meal, but mm. he would rather sacrifice that to be able to learn, but then the cook would usually sneak, sneak him some food.
0: Yeah, um, so that's when he was in the brewery. Yeah, when yeah. he was in the
2: brewery, and that dedication to learning yeah, and moving his life on.
0: Um, and he achieved so much, you know, the, all of the changes in jobs, the discovering or creating a new begonia, um, and you classify that as his greatest achievement. Mm. Why is that? I just really like the idea of it being
2: something very beautiful, and it's the fact that we still have the Mrs. Bilkey Gelnia even if most people haven't heard of him.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing we've been thinking about. What's the legacy that we leave behind, and who learns that legacy? And this is the first time that we know... This is the first time that we actually feature someone on the hill, which is about a famous cemetery, season one, that is that connected to the town. Everyone mm-hmm. else just seemed to have landed on the cemetery, either for war or accidents or coming to Falmouth to seek yeah. health and well-being. And he was completely tied to Cornwall um, and really a key part of his of its history. Um, you, is it one year now that you've been in Cornwall? Is, yes, one year. Yeah. Um, so you've done that journey, you know, you've come down to Cornwall, you've gone through the bridge. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel connected to this county? Hmm, that's interesting. Um
2: I think I feel very connected to Cornwall now and I think it's it's something about the hills maybe. It's the walking the hills <laughs> all the time. You earn it. You yes, earn, you your, earn place. your connection. <laughs> um but I think with sort of every person you come in contact with and every person who you come in, who comes in contact with you, you mm. make more of a connection to the place where you live and you feel more embedded in it. Mhm. Um but I think that's the thing about everywhere you live, because when I I went back to Kentish Town where I was living in London, mm-hmm. and someone said to me, "Oh, well, that will probably be it for the last time you meet, you visit Kentish Town," and I thought, "No, this is part of my life. This is my right. home." Yeah. But I feel like it's also here is my home now. Mm-hmm. But then when I go back to the United States, I say I'm going home.
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's home everywhere. Home everywhere. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask about is there is a death that he witnesses, um, kind of an accident, the thing with the arch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone passes away um, he he he's called to give evidence to it. And you made use of that. You made use of his actual voice, Mm -hmm. which is rare for us. Sometimes we don't actually find quotes directly from some of the characters we have from some, but it's rare. Um, So why did you want to choose that?
2: I think I wanted to use that because I think it's important to recognize when we do have the voices of people in the past, Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, it is rare and it makes them seem more real. Yeah. Even though he was speaking in a very formal context of an inquest about a horrible situation. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really important to use that. Yeah. um, Particularly his description of the body pitching over, I think that's the word he used, is the body Mm. pitched over the side. Yeah. Yeah. and I found that quite evocative and horrible. Yes. Um.
0: We do deal with the horrible here. Yes. There? <laughs> um, it's a question we've been asking more, more towards the middle of the season now um, as we learn more about the stories of people. But how do we talk or write about those who are not longer there and whose stories can we tell and whose stories we should leave for other people? Um, to tell and uh, we don't have an answer yet but um, it is a contemporary topic isn't it mm. this idea of appropriation um, what are your thoughts as a writer on appropriation in general I think it's
2: it can be a very difficult way to approach writing because there's a part mm. of you that thinks I don't want to only write about myself
0: exactly yeah um,
2: Just because I think that would be boring eventually, (laughs) Um, but you want to be mindful of what you have the capacity to write. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of I'm in the middle of a trilogy, and one of the things I immediately did was make the character Anglo-American because I knew, even though I'll have been here for 19 years at the end of this year,
0: wow, um, 19. Yeah,
2: (laughs) but I know that there are things that are still very American in my terminology. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's other American things that I can't remember. Right. So yeah. I wanted to make sure I could capture a voice of someone who lived between two worlds because I think I live between two worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for my next project, I'm going to have a purely American voice and I may need to go to Remember. friends to help. <laughs> I did yeah. that once saying, what what's the American word for a plaster if you don't use Band-Aid? And
0: into, I asked social media and apparently I don't think there is one. All right. So... There's, there's more than two worlds in On the Hill where we have characters from more than one place where they're not longer here. Their time seems to be a language as well. Um, and it carries certain imagery and it carries certain words. Um, and how we go about it, and not dissimilar to, to how your take on William Wil- Bilke here. Um, we had Amy on episode six um, talking about, talking directly to the character. Um, as an exercise to try to avoid appropriating her story as an Irish yes. Jewish woman, um, I, from a production perspective and curatorial perspective, I feel that there are stories that not saying them or not not investigating them would be a miss, would be a flaw of the project. But on the se- on the other hand, those are the stories of people. They tend to be the stories of people from we don't have writers of those communities around yes, us to be true. able to engage with that. Um, I still have a story to write about um, a character like this that I haven't figured out how. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious about it. Um, I think this one was slightly easier because
2: except for witnessing this really horrific death, he, he by all accounts, had a very nice life.
0: Yeah, um, and he was beloved. And wasn't he was beloved. It wasn't...
2: Yeah. Um, and his death seems to have been relatively easy of mm-hmm. old age. Yeah. So a, a it was
0: a w- big life, a, yeah. a wide experience. Yeah. yeah.
2: Taking in many different types of livelihoods and people. Mm. So I think that was quite, it was quite pleasant compared
0: to some of the ones I've listened to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i just, a couple of final thoughts. It's the idea of the change you would have seen in Falmouth. Um At that time, the cemetery was a mile away from the borough from the actual town now it's five minutes walk from the university Mm -hmm. which is considered at the center of town Um, do you think we will see changes that wide and that um, interesting um, in the next few years
2: I don't know if there'll be geographical differences because Mm. I don't think there's a lot more capacity to spread (laughs) it's small Um, valley no it's very small but um I think there will be massive changes because just talking to our students or talking to colleagues about what Britain was like when I came here mm. 18 and a half years ago, it has changed so radically. Mm. Um, I think there will definitely be lots more changes in film. Lots more changes.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, and here's the question we ask everyone. What do you think your gravestone would say? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um...
2: I think it's more likely to say something about being a teacher and a parent because I think that's where I focus my time. I Mm. researched a writer for my PhD um, and it was when I was stuck on my PhD and I wasn't writing very much and uh, someone had written a biography of her and it said that someone had said she would have been a better known writer if she'd been a less good teacher. (laughs) <laughs> and it absolutely terrified me and I started oh. writing much
0: more quickly <laughs> but I think I will be
2: probably better known for being a teacher than a
0: writer right, interesting hmm. alright, thank you so much thank you. Good. <laughs> that is a scary thought it's, it's so terrifying thanks for listening to episode 7 of On the Hill thanks to Kralis for sharing their recordings of their music with us for this episode thanks to Abigail for accompanying me to visit William Bilkey, and to record around Falmouth. And thank you, Jennifer, for sharing with us your piece for On the Hill. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relay the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. You can lend us a hand by telling somebody about this podcast. It really means a lot. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I know it sounds like little, but it makes a difference. Find us on Twitter at We Are On The Hill or on Facebook, also at We Are On The Hill. On The Hill is written, recorded, and produced in Falmouth by me, with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Falmouth Cemetery by me. Research about William Bilkey by Tony Casey and me. Fragments from the Falmouth Packet read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by Jennifer Young. Music by Krales. This episode was written and edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Cheresai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill.